Let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this evening. Finishing up this book here, and uh, then we'll move on to the Psalms. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, not tonight will we finish this, a couple more weeks, but 1 Thessalonians 5. I failed to mention a few things during the uh, prayer request time, and so I want to mention those now. One is the Raymonds will be traveling back this week. Keep them in prayer. Um, they're leaving on Tuesday. They're stopping by the Talberts in Illinois uh, on the way back. And so they should be back later on this week. Look forward to seeing them on Sunday. And then also uh, Dave Hamrick asked uh, that our church pray for them. They're in a time of transition right now. Um, he didn't fill me in on the details, but, but they need to make some decisions with regard to their future ministry. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be in Africa, but apparently there are some some situations going on there in Cameroon that um, that uh, are going to force them to move on. Right now, he's continuing to lead some Bible studies and and uh, doing some work there. But ask for our prayers as they make a transition. They're in contact with their sending church as well as the mission board on to as to what to do with the next step. So I'd encourage you to pray for that. In fact, let's pray for them right now. Lord, I do thank you for the many years of ministry uh, that you've given to the Hamricks in Africa. Um, I know they've been in Cameroon for several years now and, and another African country before that, but we do ask for your grace even now as they make this transition. can't be easy with, with um, two kids and and uh, with A.J. getting ready to go to college, and um, I'm not sure all the details as far as what is going on there in Cameroon, whether there's some conflict within the churches or if there's uh, some political unrest. May you give them wisdom and guidance as they take this next step. May you provide for them ministry partners in um, in the next ministry that they're involved in. And may the work of planting churches in Africa continue to go forward. We also pray that the work that has been done in Cameroon would continue to flourish uh, with the previous church plants that have been done as a result of his ministry. Uh, We just ask for wisdom and grace and that you provide for their needs in this time of transition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What would happen if your sister or family member were dropping in for a visit from the West Coast and and uh, all that you knew was that she and her family were leaving sometime this weekend. You didn't know if they would arrive, you know, Tuesday or Friday or next week sometime. And your house is a wreck and you had no food in the cupboards or in the fridge to be able to prepare meals for them while they're staying with you. And, you know, you thought because her arrival and her family's arrival was unknown, then I'm just not going to do anything. You know, she maybe she won't come, or if she comes, she comes. I'll deal with that problem then. You know, sadly, that's the way that a lot of people view the return of Christ. Could be true that, that Christ is coming back. Could be true. But if He comes, He comes. I'll deal with the... I'll deal with uh, my problem then. You know, maybe this is just a a big hoax. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow, you know, I'll deal with my problems then. 
I, I just don't have time to care right now, and so I'm not going to care about the return of the Lord. But according to the Scriptures, we must be ready for the Lord to return. And Paul here gives us a clear command in this passage to exhort one another to be ready, that we have to be sober-minded uh, with regard to the return of our Lord. This is not something that we just kind of you know, slough off. It's not that big of a deal. But we need to be serious-minded about this. And uh, so that's what we're going to see tonight. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as helmet a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, for obtaining salvation through our Lord, uh, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another, uh, build up one another, just as you also are doing. We are in a time of anticipation anticipating the return of our Lord. And while we're in that time, we must encourage one another to be spiritually alert. While we're in a time of anticipation, we must encourage one another to be spiritually alert. The basis for the exhortation that we must be alert and encourage others to do the same is found in verses 1-3. through That is, the Thessalonians need to understand what was going to happen at the end times. Now, Paul begins by saying, you already know this, but I'm just reminding you. Right? I don't need to tell you. No one needs to, to tell you about this. But notice how he begins in verse 1. Now as to. So he's starting a new topic. It's different from what he had been talking about. Remember, last time we looked at the rapture of Jesus Christ, that He's going to rapture His saints. And with the trumpet call of God, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will, will uh, follow and so will be with the Lord forever. Okay, so that, that's what he, And then he turns and he says, verse 18 of chapter 4, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me talk about a different topic. And really, it's a topic that's similar but different, isn't it? It's not talking about the rapture, so to speak, but it's actually talking about the judgment that will follow the rapture for those who are not Christ's. And Paul wanted to to inform them and to encourage them in this way. Last week he wanted to encourage them about we saw that he wanted to encourage them about dead believers in light of the coming of the Lord. This week Paul's going to show us what how, how should we should live in light of the Lord's delay, right? They were concerned what happens about my what happens with these dead believers, these dev, dead loved ones. Should we be concerned about them because they're going to miss out on all the blessings of the end times. And Paul says, no, don't worry about them. 
And now he turns and says, now here's what you are to be doing in anticipation of the Lord's delay. And he says there at the beginning of verse 5, as to the times and the epochs. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 1, and I'll show you that this is referring to the end times. Acts chapter 1, this is a phrase that's used here as well. Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 6. The disciples are talking to Christ here as after he had a... Um, after he had been raised from the dead, before he was ascended into heaven. And they ask him a specific question at the end of verse 6. Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? You notice what Jesus says. Verse 7, He said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Okay, It's not for you to know those times. They're asking... When will the kingdom be restored? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know about the end times. It's not for you to know. That means that that it wasn't going to happen at this time when Jesus was among them. But it's going to happen later. And that's the same phrase that Paul uses. You can turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jesus had said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs of when God will arrange this kingdom to come about. And Paul says now about that time, about that future coming together culmination of Jesus Christ reigning on the earth, um, I, I'm glad that you have a good understanding. Okay, This is regarding the Lord's coming. Notice the end of verse 1. You have no need of anything to be written to you. Because, verse 2, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know full well. Because Paul is saying, you know, because I explained this to you when I was among you. And, uh, and so I don't need to tell you. And uh, notice that this is talking about uh, the day of the Lord the uh, middle of verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Scripture writers use this phrase, the day of the Lord, to refer to a specific time period. And it's actually not a 24-hour day. It's actually referring to a time period which is future. It includes both judgment and blessing. Now, if you understand anything about the Jewish day, you know that it starts at night for us. It starts around six o'clock in the evening, okay, when it start when it's dark, and then it it uh, continues on. So actually, their day would begin with darkness and move to light. And this is how the day of the Lord is as well, that it begins with darkness, judgment, and ends with light, blessing. So when do you suppose that this judgment and blessing? are taking place. Is the judgment happening now? The darkness? Are we living in a time of darkness and maybe the rapture is the light? Or is the day of the Lord referring to the darkness of judgment at the tribulation period and the light of the kingdom? The 1,000 year reign of Christ. And I would submit to you that it's the second one there. It is referring to the day of the Lord begins with the battle of Armageddon and moves all the way through the end of the kingdom. The day of the Lord. The Old Testament writers would understand that they would actually talk about it in both of those ways, both as a time of judgment 
and a time of blessing. And uh, so they didn't need to be told about this. They didn't have to be, need to be taught about this because Paul had already told them. They knew that the day of the Lord would come and that when it did, it would come like a thief in the night. In verse 3, we see the unbeliever's perspective at the end of the tribulation. That, that unbelievers at the end of the tribulation won't understand this. Notice verse 3, while they are saying, these people who are on the wrong end of the day of the Lord, the judgment of the day of the Lord, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. Okay, They will say, this is similar to these false prophets in uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, and Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 8, where they're crying out, hey, everything's good, peace, peace. And God says there is no peace. Or like the scoffers that Peter pointed out in Second Peter chapter three, everybody continues, everything continues on as it has been. There'll be no judgment. And God says these people who are in the tribulation, who are saying peace, 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 safety, destruction is going to come upon them like a thief in the night. This is not referring to the rapture. The thief in the night is not referring to the rapture. Whenever that phrase is used, it's actually referring to Jesus' actual coming in judgment at the end of the tribulation. When He touches down on the Mount of Olives and then He carries out His battle with the sword of His mouth. Notice the pronouns in verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Okay, so we have this focus on people who are not Paul's audience. He's not saying, you people, you will be saying peace and safety and then destruction will come upon you. He's saying they, these people who will be at that time just prior to the, the judgment of the day of the Lord. And this judgment will come upon them in two ways. Notice verse 3. First of all, unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. Unexpectedly. That's why he uses that analogy, right? We, it's unexpected because if we knew the thief were coming, then we would be able to prepare for him. But that's the craftiness of the thief, right? He figures out our patterns and he comes when we don't expect him to come. And so that's the way that the day of the Lord is going to be. It's going to come at a time that is unexpected for many people. But also, the day of the Lord will come unavoidably. It will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, but it will come... The idea of the labor pains is not that it will come unexpectedly, right? If you're pregnant for you know, almost full term and you start to get labor pains, it's not that you don't expect labor pains to come. It's that you can't avoid them, right? You can't stop them from coming. And that's the thing with the day of the Lord. It's, it's that there is no escape. Look at the end of the verse like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Literally, they will in no way escape. So the argument that I laid out at the beginning that, you know what, when the day of the Lord comes, when the, the coming of the Lord is here, then I'll deal with it then. Paul says, no. At that time, it will be a time of judgment and there will be no escape. There will be no escape. So, 
because this day of the Lord is coming, beginning with an intense period of judgment, what should we do? The answer is found in verses 4 through 8. And we ought to be alert and sober. This is our responsibility. We must be alert and sober. Because Christ is coming, we must be alert and sober. This is how we are to respond. Notice the pronouns change from they and them to verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in... in, uh, Darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So now Paul's going to focus on his readers, on believing Thessalonians, and by extension, us as believers as well. Okay, we, Paul's uh, audience here, are not in darkness. See, you, brethren, are not in darkness. They are sons of the night, verse 5 says. They are sons of darkness. What does this mean? What does it mean to be in darkness? Well, the answer comes at the end of 4. You, brethren, are not in darkness. What does it mean to be in darkness? That the day would overtake you like a thief. That you will be judged like an, an unbeliever because you are one. That's what it means to be a son of the night or a son of darkness. And the point that Paul's making is not you know, how terrible for them, but... How great for us that we are not in darkness. Right? Because verse 5 says that we are sons of what? Sons of light. Sons of day, says there. We're not of the darkness. And that means that the destiny of those who are in darkness will not fall upon us. It will not fall upon us. We will be spared from the judgment portion of the day of the Lord. We will take part in the day of the Lord, but not the judgment part. That is, we're not, we won't be... Uh, on the receiving end of the judgment of Christ. Instead, we will enjoy blessing the the day. We are sons of the day, like the Jewish day that would follow the, the night, the darkness. So we are sons of light. We're not of the darkness. And the reason that we are sons of light is because John 12, 35, and 36 says that Christ is the light. And so we are the sons of the light. And when He saved us, Colossians 1.13, He saved us out of the domain of darkness. That's what we were in. We were in the domain of darkness and destined for darkness, night, judgment. But God brought us out of that domain and, and made us the son of light, son of the day. Now we can enjoy blessing. And... Uh, So Paul begins to show our responsibility to us by first showing us who we are. We have a relationship with Christ. We are sons of the light. And so because of that, here's what we ought to do. Verses 6-8. through We need to be sober. We need to be alert. We must not sleep. We could summarize it that way. We must not sleep. Look at verse 6 with me. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. So here's what we ought to do. In light of the return of the Lord, in light of the Lord's delay, because we're not sons of darkness, we're, we are sons of light, we must not sleep. What does this mean here? 
What is Paul talking about? Well, in four, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, do you remember what sleep was referring to? Remember? Those who, those who sleep will precede those who are awake. What was that referring to? That was referring to death, right? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Is he saying, let us not die as others do physically? Instead, be alert and sober? I don't think so. In fact, the word for sleep here is a different word than is in chapter 4. And uh, it's a word that usually means complacency. Okay, complacency, slothfulness. Uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 45. The disciples are called on by Christ to come with Him to Gethsemane to pray. And, uh, and they fall asleep, you remember. And Jesus says, can't you stay awake for one hour? Can you not watch and pray for one hour? You sleep again? Now, they were literally sleeping. But His point was that you are being spiritually complacent. And here's the way that you don't be spiritually complacent. Be alert in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. Okay, so you can't be doing that. You're you're on the brink of a huge temptation that you don't understand. And you need to be spiritually alert. That's the way that Paul's using it here. That that we must not be like the sons of darkness in that verse 6. We do not become spiritually complacent as others do. So instead of becoming spiritually complacent, that is sleeping, what must we do? Look at the last part of verse 6. Instead, let us be alert and sober. So we can't be spiritually complacent. We can't sleep. Instead, we should be spiritually sober, alert. That is a spiritual, uh, a spirit of watchfulness. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Just one book back and probably one page back for you. Colossians chapter 4. What does it mean to be watchful? And what does it mean to be sober and alert like Paul's calling us? Don't sleep as others do. But instead, be alert and sober. Here, here's a good way to look at it. And I've already kind of clued you into this based on the example of the disciples. But here it is in chapter 4, verse 2. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert. Okay, so how do we... What happens when we devote ourselves to prayer? We will be, here's what he's saying, we will be keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Here's how we are alert, how we are sober. We dependently trust in God through prayer. Through the means that He has provided for us, we depend upon Him. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jesus said in Matthew 26, watch and pray. Or be watchful through praying is the idea there. The way that you're watchful is through your prayer. So do that so that you will not fall into temptation. Paul says here, don't sleep. Don't become spiritually complacent. Instead, be alert and Sober. What what would keep us from this spiritual sobriety? Look at verse seven. It gives us the answer. Two things: sleep and 
drunkenness. Okay, sleep and drunkenness. And again, the, the word for sleep there is referring to, it's the same word that's used there. So it's again referring to spiritual complacency most likely. One of the things that will keep us from being alert and sober is sleeping. That is, being complacent or be, being drunk. We're not sober. We're, we're um, more concerned about uh, satisfying our desires rather than being spiritually alert. So, what does spiritual sobriety look like? If our responsibility is not to sleep and to be spiritual, spiritually sober, what does that look like? Verse 8 tells us, But since we are of the day, let us be sober. How do we do this? Well, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There's the answer. Okay, I've already mentioned that we ought to pray. We ought to dependently trust upon God. But here Paul tells us, if we want to be sober, we need to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of, which is the hope of salvation. Now this probably sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like the armor in Ephesians chapter 6? But there are some differences. Because there, he does talk about the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6, 7, 17. But there are some differences. In Ephesians 6, it's the breastplate of what? Righteousness. Not the breastplate of, notice in verse 8, the breastplate of faith and love. So there's different virtues here. And which piece of equipment is used to describe faith in Ephesians? Take the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, right? So here he's saying the breastplate of faith and the breastplate of love and the helmet of salvation. So what's going on here? In Ephesians 6, by the way, there's no piece of equipment that represents love. So is Paul confused? Does he forget about something? Or I don't think the point is that we need to have certain attributes to cover certain parts of our spiritual body. Like, for example, we'll just take this to an extreme and say... If we want to cover our spiritual heart, we need the breastplate of righteousness. We need to be righteous, and this will protect us, you know, our, our spiritual hearts from being, uh, you know, uh, pierced with the the spears of the devil and so on. I don't think that's the point. Instead, we need to gird ourselves up. Here's the idea: He's just saying, put on your armor, your spiritual armor of faith, hope, and love. Okay, put put on your armor of faith, hope, and love. That's those are the three that are listed. Well, why should we do this? Why should we gird ourselves up with faith, hope, and love? Why should we be spiritually sober-minded? What's the point? And Paul gives us the answer in verses nine through ten. He says, "Here are the reasons for being sober spiritually." And um, so let's read those verses. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Okay, so what I want you to notice there is verse, verse 9, the very first word is, for. Here is why we ought to be sober. Because we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for darkness, for judgment. Look at verse 4 again. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day of day would overtake. Because you're not in darkness, you're not destined for wrath. You're going to skip that part. 
And uh, this is something that we saw in chapter 1, verse 10. Would you turn back there with me? Chapter 1, uh, we'll start with verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us. Paul says to them, what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, here we have this truth that's reaffirmed in chapter 5, that we will be saved from the wrath of God. We will be saved from the wrath of God. And the, one of the, uh, the primary ways that God displays His wrath on the people of the earth is through the tribulation. And so I think that this is a theological way of Paul saying, we will not be a part of that tribulation. We are not children of darkness. We are children of light. And instead of that wrathful destination, notice verse 9, but for obtaining salvation. Now you might think, well, I've already obtained salvation. I don't understand that. This is... Remember, you have three different aspects of salvation that are talked about in Scripture. Past salvation, that is when we came to Christ. Present salvation, that we are being saved, right? This is the idea of of sanctification. And then final salvation, we will be saved. All three of those senses are true. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Glorification. That's 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 what it's talking about here, this third aspect that we will obtain final salvation, that it will be final, complete, full through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have salvation in Him. So that, whether we're awake or asleep, verse 10, we will live together with Him. What's going on here? Because we need to understand what Paul's talking about. Is this talking about sleeping like spiritual complacency versus spiritual alertness? Or is this talking about physical life versus physical death? Well, this actually is a very difficult verse to interpret because the word for asleep is actually the same word that's already used in this passage which refers to spiritual complacency. Now, you would think that Paul would be saying that whether you are alive physically or dead physically, you will live together with Christ. That's how I would think that it would go, but the verb that he uses here is actually takes the idea that whether you are spiritually alert, awake, or spiritually complacent, we will live together with him. Um, so there, those are the two options. I actually I actually lean towards the first option that he's talking about physical life and physical death. And the reason for that is that the standard Greek lexicon takes it to mean that way. Even though this is the only way that that word sleep is used, that it could be referring to physical life and physical death, uh, they take it as a euphemistic expression and I would follow that. Because to me, it doesn't make sense for Paul to say something like this. Whether you are spiritually sober or spiritually complacent, you're going to, it doesn't matter. Right, you're going to live with Christ forever. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe Paul's teaching on eternal security that very well could be the case. But again, I, I lean towards the other view that whether you are alive, what we talked about 
this week, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, or you are dead physically, like we talked about last week, the point is that we're going to be with the Lord. Christ has preserved a place for us, reserved uh, or preserved us from His wrath so that we don't have to experience it and has given us eternal life. So, we are not of the darkness. The Lord is coming. So we must be sober and alert. And uh, and what should we do with this? Finally, in verse 11, we need to encourage one another in this way. This is similar to the last verse in chapter 4. Okay, Because of what we know about those who die in the Lord, we can encourage those people who are left behind. That That is the believers who are still left in the church without their loved ones. We can encourage them because we know the outcome. We know where they are now. And Paul says at the end of the verse, verse 11, just as you also are doing. You're already doing this, Paul says, but I want you to continue to do this. I want you to excel in this even more. He's already said that before. He's encouraged throughout this book of their faith and hope and love. And he wants them to excel in it even more. It's not that he's bringing up new doctrines necessarily. He's just encouraging encouraging them to do what is right, what they already know. And that's a good thing. This passage is a call to encourage one another towards spiritual alertness. Because spiritual sleep is complacency. It is being complacent with the resources that God has given us. It's growing weary. It's giving up on the task. It's, you know, as we're in the race of the Christian life, where it's sitting out on the sideline and saying, you know, it's too much work. I can't do this anymore. It doesn't bring me any short term benefit. The road just keeps getting harder and longer and narrower. There's fewer people on the road. I feel like I'm all alone sometime. And so because it requires too much effort, I'm going to give up. And Paul would say to you, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't be weary. We cannot be spiritually complacent. We cannot adopt the mindset of procrastination. It says, I know I'm not living for God now, but I will square up with Him later. Maybe when I reach another status in my life, like college or marriage or become a parent or a grandparent or when I retire or when I get into this part of ministry, whatever. Once I arrive at that status, at that time I'm going to be more faithful And I'm going to care more about sin and I'm going to do more for Christ with the resources and abilities that I have then. But for right now, I'm just going to continue going as I am. I'm going to continue in my sin and deal with it later. And sadly, that is an eerily similar mindset to the people at the time of the flood. They went about their daily lives hearing about the truth rejecting it, not wanting to act upon what they had heard. They just went on with their business with no thought of coming judgment, no belief that they had uh, to do anything, and no fear that it would come at any time. We must be spiritually alert. We must be sober. We must put on the breastplate of faith and hope and love. We will not be found sleeping. Turn to Mark 13. We'll finish here. Mark chapter 13.
the judgment that is coming, this day of the Lord that's going to come like a thief in the night is referring to the judgment at the end of the tribulation. If you're a believer, you're not even going to, to be a part of that because you will have been raptured. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. You will have been raptured. You will not take any part in the tribulation. When the tribulation comes, that's when it will come unexpectedly to them and unavoidably like labor pains. They will not be able to avoid it. Okay, So I want, I want to make clear about that because I don't want this to go away from here and say we must be sober so that we're ready for the, the rapture of Christ. That is true, but that's not the point of the text. We must be sober because we are not going to be a part of the final judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation. Here in Mark chapter 13, Jesus again is referring to the day of the Lord, which begins again with His judgment. Let me read this passage and then I'll try to make application for us. But just recognize this referring to the actual judgment of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. Verse 33. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Jesus is saying to to His audience here that, that the day when I return is coming. And you need to be ready like a watchman. Like, like a doorkeeper at a house. You don't wait until you start to see Him off in the distance because that's not how He's going to come. Instead, He's going to come in a moment. We need to be ready for Him. And because He can come at any time, verse 36, we should not be found asleep. And this is the same idea that we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5. We cannot be found spiritually complacent. What would you like the Lord to find you do, doing? What would you like the Lord to find you doing and saying and thinking and participating in when He returns? What would you like Him to find you doing? If you don't want the Master to find you doing the things that could be described as spiritual sleep, then don't do those things now. Because the Son of Man is coming with great power and great glory and we don't know the time of His return. So don't let Him find you sleeping spiritually. His coming will be without warning. So what is it that you want to be found doing when the Lord returns? Whatever that is, do it now. Be doing it as you go on through life. And in so doing, you'll be spiritually awake, sober, ready for the return of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're... We are um, weak and we are prone to wander and we need You to take Your staff and pull us back in into the fold so we do not wander off 
into danger. We want to know Your voice and hear it and follow You. And we pray that You would you would pursue us and that You would help us to be vigilant with our responsibility to be ready for when You do return. We look forward to the day when You rapture Your church, when You bring them home to be with You, and so we will ever be with the Lord. May we be comforted in, in the words that have been given tonight. Through the Apostle Paul, he encourages us to be alert and sober. May we comfort one another with those things. Do not give up. Do not be weary in well-doing. The race is hard. And it requires great amount of discipline and work and effort and setbacks and, and um, tears and pain. And uh, we recognize that we cannot be carried to the clouds on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the fight and sailed through bloody seas. So we ask for Your help to stand up in the midst of battle, to put our armor on so that we can stand firm against Satan and his desire to remove us from the race, to get us off course, to slow us down, and give us the strength to do this, we pray. May we encourage one another especially even more as the day is approaching because our hearts are deceitful and without the encouragement of one another, we could easily turn astray. May you help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.